cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com, we always talk to interesting people from all over the world, and there are very few subjects that we're not um, going to, to broach. And some of these subjects, although they're touchy and complicated, um, some of them are, are not nearly as complicated as the subject we're about to get into with someone who I'm really, really pleased to welcome to our show for the first time. He's the author of this book. It's called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy, something which has been an undercurrent in the identitarian and leftist wars of what's happening in American academia and beyond academia because it's now spilled over into everything else. I'm very, very happy to have on the show this morning. Uh, someone who uh, may be known to some of you, but will certainly be known to you by the end of this. His name is Kenny Shu. Kenny, it's great, uh, great pleasure to have you with us. And thank Absolutely. you very much for writing. Thank you for writing the book and, and thank you for doing what you're doing. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate being on the show. You know, I think this issue is very important, has a lot of relevance to a lot of things that are going on. I'd love to talk with you. So first of all, you're, you're an Asian American. Um, that can be a very complicated label to carry around. It could mean, of Indian origin. It could mean of mm-hmm. South, South Korean origin. It could mean Japanese American. It can mean Chinese American. I mean, what does Asian American mean before we even get into the book? Yeah. You know, Asian really <laughs> it's look, <laughs> the term Asian American is so diffuse. Uh, you know, actually the term Asian American is invented by Marxists at Berkeley. That's a lot of people won't mm. tell you that. A lot of people don't know that um, because they wanted people from the continent of Asia to sort of have a solidarity identity in America. Um, But the problem is that identity quickly falls apart when you're comparing, say, Korean Americans with, you know, Malaysian Americans or Pakistani Americans. They they simply Mm -hmm. don't have that much in common, you know. Um, (laughs) So that's it's it's really it's really a diffuse label. But people do have like kind of Despite that, you know, Asian Americans, they have maybe a couple of unifying factors. You know, they're obviously all children of immigrants in some fashion, most of them recent. Um, And then they all tend to really place a high value in their education, I would say, culturally, uh, as a broader general statement. Um, So that that kind of shows the influence of of that culture in America today. But it is such a very complex label because obviously there are so many people who um, consider themselves to to be pre- preeminently a, an Asian American, whatever that means to them. Um, it's very hard to figure out. It's it's kind of like all the other labels that we get in terms of gender identity or in terms of race or in terms of politics or anything else that people wish to to use. How important is it to you? And do you ever use that label? Because I mean, you know, I, I think without causing any trouble for anybody, it would be fairly obvious to anyone who encountered you either in a, on a varsity campus or in, you know, the shops or pretty much anywhere else. You know, it seems to me you, you're of uh, Asian descent and that that's, uh, and the accent gives away that you're American. I don't think we need to be labeling you, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It does sound like I'm American, doesn't it? I mean, if, if no one looks at my face, I can call somebody and they have no idea, you know, who, right. uh, you know, what race or ethnicity I am. Funny enough. Um, it, don't they call uh, uh, people from the Indian subcontinent in, in South Africa, don't they call them colored? Well, we've got we've got a really complicated system here because of the of the history of this country. So people 
there used to be very strict racial delineations because there were different laws for different uh, population groups. So if you're black, you, you belong to kind of a, a you know, a, a strict African uh, black South African descent. If you were, if you were colored, it meant you had one or more parents who were either of a different color than black, or you had grandparents or great grandparents, or you were just someone who was indeterminate somewhere in the middle. And many, many Indian South Africans, and we, we even have a population of Chinese South Africans and even Japanese South Africans here that, you know, we're a complicated mix like any other great country in the world that has taken on immigration, which I think is, is, indisputably something which enhances a country um mm -hmm. those people were subject to all kinds of tests to determine who they were during the apartheid era in south africa and many of them used to do whatever was necessary to be classified on the white side of things so that they could have the advantages mm -hmm. of being in that group but many of them i mean to this day there's there, there are there are families that have been separated by these classifications and it's all such made up nonsense it's so arbitrary right. you know where, where do you draw the line between you know a fourth generation asian american or the mm -hmm. first generation how do you even know and as you say on the phone how can you tell when i'm listening to you with with just your voice which many people may do on this podcast they may not see your face and they may think oh this is a you know a white dude from new york or a, or a black guy from san francisco they wouldn't know yeah, it's this is like the um well, I'll tell you what. Um I'm a fairly well assimilated Asian American, fairly well assimilated Chinese American. Um and you I, you know, quotation marks just before anybody gets upset because people do get upset about that stuff too. You have to tread so carefully. Right, right. Um and, and what I mean by that just simply is, you know, I I have I barely have any experience much with uh, my Chinese country of origin. Um, my parents made an effort to get me integrated into American society and they've done so well um, in my, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but the, uh, but the, and so that, that makes me different than, you know, somebody who just came from China to America, you know, five years ago. And it makes me different in, in a lot of ways. Uh, it gives me certain advantages. It gives me certain disadvantages. You know, um, there's this kind of debate right now within Chinese American community, um, whether America helps a child or corrupts a child, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think that that's an, I mean, that's an interesting debate for me. I think it, I think America largely helps, but, um, that, that's something that, that is a debate in the community. Well, uh, we, we could even debate my point, which I said was indisputable about the fact that in, immigrants enhance a country and, and add to its, its cultural and, 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 and thinking and, and, and all other kinds of tapestries. Um, but that, that could be for some people debatable. Some people like a homogenous society. They think that that's the way we should all be. We should all be exactly the same. And maybe things would be easier to, to, to operate within if if that was the case uh, do you have any strong feelings on that with, with regard to immigration it's a really hot button issue in the u.s yeah i think immigration so i don't think you i don't think diversity is universally a good thing i i think that diversity can destroy a country as well as help it the the right. reason why diversity works in america is because we have a unifying principle the principle is called meritocracy it's also known mm -hmm. as the american dream it's basically like okay if you come to this country, 
um, you can come from any background and you'll be treated on the basis of how hard you work and and you can become successful based on that, not on the basis of your background, right? Obviously, that's an ideal. Obviously, many times we don't live up to it. But to the extent mm-hmm. that we subscribe and we try to really propagate that ideal, we're able to handle, America is able to handle diversity uh, because right. you get people of all different cultures and talents who come here and 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 you're able to negotiate those talents just by saying we're going to judge you on the value that you bring to our country, not on your weird or unique customs that we don't understand about you. So that's why I think America has historically been able to accommodate diversity, especially racial and ethnic diversity, better than a lot of other countries in the world. Um, but unfortunately, you see that 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 ideal is coming in danger right now because of identity politics. Uh, and that is part of the subject of my book, An Inconvenient Minority. Well, you you create an an easy segue into the discussion around your book. But before I, I give up on the on the subject that we've just yeah. broached. There's so much to unpack here. And and you mentioned earlier that diversity isn't always necessarily a good thing. And it can be a very destructive thing. And it can lead to a country fragmenting irreparably. Uh, what yeah. do you feel? Uh, what do you feel are the, are the good kinds of diversity? And what do you think the bad kinds are? And, and then we'll talk about this meritocracy that you've broached. No, absolutely. So look, um, let's take a country like Iraq, for example. You know, mm. in, in which it was basically cobbled together and it has a ton of ethnic and, and particularly religious diversity between Sunnis and Shiite Muslims. Um, but because of that diversity, in part, has really sparked a ton of ethnic tensions that still really hurt the nation overall today. Now, the U.S. thought that they could come into Iraq and just repair all of those, and the rest of the world, of course, thought that they could come to Iraq and just make diversity and export democracy, um, a multiracial democracy into Iraq. And that obviously mm-hmm. proved that that was not the case, that that could not have been the case. So that was an example of bad diversity, right? That was an example of mm-hmm. diversity that led to destabilization of a country. Um, good diversity is is diversity that is that is well-managed, that is well-managed according to universal principles. Um, and, and that requires immigrants to sacrifice a little bit. You have to sacrifice a little bit of your home culture to come to America. Um, that, is, that is true in order for this to work. Uh, for example, you know, if you come to, to America from a predominantly um, you know, non-English speaking country, one of your responsibilities when you come to America is to learn English and that's not really negotiable. You know, this is the language of the majority of Americans. And if you don't learn English, you'll probably be consigned to second class uh, status in America. And we've made that, we've made that um, a sort of a response, not a sort of a responsibility in America. It's part of taking the test of citizenship in this country uh, is that, you know, sufficient English. But because of that, because the immigrants can come in, they have a bar that is you need to learn English. You need to be familiar with our culture. You need to be familiar with our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. The immigrants who do come here eventually become naturalized, eventually get their green card, eventually become U.S. citizens are some of them are some are well assimilated into our culture and can and can produce great value and benefits to our country. 
Well, you used a word there, value, and I suppose values are the reason that people move to another country in the first place. I mean, when your parents decided, you know, China's not for us and we're going to try and create a place where where Kenny can grow up and realize his dreams, part of the reason that probably attracted them was the fact that America is a country of, you know, opportunity, a country of freedom, a country where people embrace difference and democracy, where everybody has a say, where no one gets to tell everyone else what to do. It's kind of the opposite in some ways of, of what they might have grown up in in China, understanding of, of, of government and democracy or of, of certainly of, of the systems that were in place. So values are probably a big part of that too. And you brought up assimilation pretty early on, but mm-hmm. it's become a it's become a very dirty word to some people, particularly people on the left who think, that you should be able to have your cake and eat it. You know, it's interesting that most leftists in the world live in countries that are not left of center governments. Um, most of the people who live in left of center government countries tend to be as conservative or as unhappy as possible and desperate to get out. It's, it's nice to be a, a, a communist in a capitalist country, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty nice to have a, to be a communist in a capitalist country, especially when you get a multi-million dollar book deal. For your communist philosophies, like Ibram X. Kendi, um, but this is, you know, this is a Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. Take your pick, right? You know, and you can build your brand and your reputation through all of that. You know, yeah. My parents came to America in search of freedom, in search of entrepreneurship. My dad really wanted to come to America. My mom, my mom, um, was dating my dad at the time, and my dad said, "Do you want to go to America?" And mom said, "Yes." And my dad said, well, we should get married. And my mom married my dad, you know, in part because she wanted to come to America. And she obviously wanted to come with somebody to go to America. She didn't want to come alone. Um, So Mm -hmm. America is a very powerful attractor, right? It it has a certain set of principles. It has certain ideals. You can't. And America is not communism. America, the, the set of ideals is meritocracy is you come here and we're not going to give you your 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 way up. We're not going to give you your ticket to success. You have to work for it. You have to work really hard for it. A lot of immigrants come to America and they work really hard and they train their kids to study really hard uh, so that they can achieve social mobility. But they do it so because they know that this country is great um, and, and you can't have freedom in this country in a way that you can't have in the rest of the world. So the the obvious question before we get into the book and meritocracy is, are you proud to be American? And is there anywhere else in the world you would rather be right now? Oh, I'm very proud. Well, I'm very proud to be American. Um, But here's here's why, you know, there. And I've seen in this country that that people repair their differences largely Yes, they attack each other on social media. Yes, you know, there's a lot of tempers that flare. But people, we have a strong civil society in this country. And people will resolve their disagreements through politics and through voting in the voting block. And that's, I think, far superior and far better to resolving it on the street um, and through fistfights. Um, the other thing I really love about America is the, is, is the way that we have been able to handle all of this diversity. Um, and historically, um, we've been able to, to, to bring people from so many different cultures and we've been able to, you know, treat them on the content of their character, not the color of their skin, 
And that has resulted in a great country that I think is better off for it. So, Kenny, the, the motivation for writing this book, many people who are listening to this podcast now or who are watching the video will will not know what the situation is in, in the U.S. right now. When it comes to this is not some grievance book. And, and I like the fact that you brought in the word inconvenient because it immediately reminded of reminded me of El Gore's Inconvenient Truth, um, which was, you know, it was like a it was like a Bible for the climate change movement. And they've used it ever since as a way of kind of despite the fact that many of the predictions made in that book have turned out to be complete nonsense and 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 hopelessly prejudicial to uh, the overall thesis. I think many people at the time it was published, thought this is something seminary. This is something which will change people's minds. And it, in many cases, it probably did. And, and you know, Al Gore certainly carved out a reputation for himself. When you are writing a book like An Inconvenient Minority, your book, the attack on Asian-American excellence and the fight for meritocracy, you must have known right from the get-go this was going to be very unpopular in some quarters and that it would sound like a a grievance book. I mean, explain to people what the situation is that led you to write the book. So an inconvenient minority really um, is, is about this, this struggle for meritocracy, not the struggle for grievance, but within the Asian American, within the Asian American community in America, right? There is this dangerous new ideology called identity politics, which actually threatens to discriminate them against them and swallow them up. And I found out about this very early on in my life when I was in high school applying to college. Um, you know, people were advising me all the time, you know, Kenny, Harvard's just going to judge you uh, worse because you're Asian. You know, you have to try to be like an Asian, but try to be like a different type of Asian. Like, don't be the stereotypical type of Asian because then Harvard's just going to judge you poorly for it. Um, and I was like, well, you know, why, why is it uniquely an Asian thing that, that, that Harvard judges people on this? And then I realized it's because that, you know, Harvard and all of these Ivy league colleges discriminate against Asian Americans. And I was mad about that, but I let it go until about midway through college. Um, until I realized that we have this huge, hugely spawning diversity, equity, and inclusion industry in America that's operating on the same principles that Harvard created that Harvard created, Harvard created critical race theory, Harvard, right. which, which is the idea that you divide people into privileged and oppressed races. Um, and then you, you enforce policies based on that privilege and oppression. And so this Let's, entire landscape is changing. I, I, wanted, in I just want to explain, in, 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 sorry, in case people don't know what you're talking about. If you apply as an Asian American to, to Harvard, they are actively discriminating against Asian Americans because of excellence. Um, because yeah. what Asian Americans do is they outperform everybody, white people, uh, 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 African Americans, uh, people who have come from Eastern Europe, people who've come from pretty much anywhere in the world. Asian Americans seem to outperform all of them by quite a large margin. And this is embarrassing to Harvard because they think everybody should come out of Harvard with equal results. And it's clearly a problem for their diversity people who want to, to, to paint a, almost a, what was that, um, that brand called that used to do those, those, um, adverts like, uh, what was it? Those, uh, they used to have people of different races all wearing different kinds of underwear. And it was, it was like meant to be <laughs> the, a beautiful picture of diversity. Fruit, fruit yeah. of the loom. 
I don't know. Yes, yeah, something like that. And yeah. and these guys used to they they were actively trying when they put these policies into into play mm-hmm. to create an equal outcomes type situation, which right. considering right. the culture of many Asian Americans was just not something that they were prepared to offer up without without having to lose some places themselves. Right, right. So let I me mean, let's talk about that. The mm. the Asian Americans who apply to Harvard. Harvard judges applicants on three things academics extracurriculars and personality score right and Mm -hmm. asian americans perform the highest out of all of the races on academics they perform the highest out of all of the races on extracurriculars but they perform the lowest out of all of the races on this personality score it's a very subjective score that says Mm -hmm. we're going to measure you on things like likability humor um, leadership, charisma. And I looked at the data and everybody looked at the data uh, who participated in this lawsuit. And there's no objective evidence to suggest that Asians have lower of any of these qualities. Their mm-hmm. alumni interviews, they do just as well as whites. Their teacher recommendations, they do a little bit worse than whites, but they do better than blacks and Hispanics. And, you know, this is a kind of, um, this is, this is, this personality score is a proxy for Harvard's racial discrimination. Um, And so as a result, you have Asian Americans who have to score 440 points higher on the standardized exam in in the United States to have the same chance of admission as a black person. By the way, that's very significant. That's like, that's like a sixth, that's like a sixth higher in terms of the entire score value of the exam. It's a 2,400 point exam. So this is this is this is a phenomenon that that basically penalizes excellence and in the name of ensuring what Harvard wants as a diverse student body. Well, I thought of the the, the brand was United Colors of Benetton that I was thinking. Uh. They were the ones who did those ads. But to me, this is reminiscent of what happened in this country in South Africa for a long time, where the government was actively involved in discriminating against black people. And mm-hmm. they did this, they did this as part of the government's policy. So, you know, you had to be unbelievably good and then beyond good to even get into a university if you were a black person in South Africa in the apartheid era. And, mm-hmm. and it seems to me like you're penalizing people for excellence, which is exactly the opposite of what a meritocratic society should be doing. And the reason we believe a meritocratic society is the best society is because you allow everybody to do whatever they're the best at in that department and contribute in terms of value to society. No, exactly. Exactly. You know, it shouldn't be controversial. Right. You know, if some people are better at academics, you should let them do academics. If some people are better at business, you should let them do business. If some people are better at arts, you should let them do arts. You know, you should reward people on the basis of their merit in whatever field that they choose to go to. That, that I think is a central principle of meritocracy. It's what has made America such a great country. And that's the principle at stake right now. Um, when you, um, now, now for the, for in South Africa, for example, did they um, make the argument that, well, the government oppressed black people for so long, so they need to sort of enact reparations for mm-hmm. black people to, yeah, by well, giving them all of these privileges? And what were those effects? There's now there's now affirmative action here, which I'm sure you're familiar with, especially in, in places like California. Affirmative action is a is a well known policy and they get away with it. It's active racial discrimination, in fact. But right. they get away with it by saying, Well, look, you know, the past was so unfair 
that we need to we need to fix that by being unfair again, which of course right. is you know it's it's just piling unfairness on unfairness. But mm-hmm. for some reason, this seems to be an acceptable policy to many people. We've got something called black economic empowerment in South Africa, which has done nothing yeah. for ordinary black people except enrich the very wealthiest, most connected, most elite government tied people, and. You know, so many South Africans just kind of swallow it and go, oh, well, that's that's better than just having things work on merit, which is insane. It's it's, it's completely insane. I don't know right. where in the world this has ever worked. But, you know, everybody who tries it always says, well, we'll get it right this time. And somehow enough people believe them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you're going to you're making what you're doing is actually you're putting a handicap on your economy, too, because you need to, for economy to work, for it to grow, you need to select for the best people. And what mm-hmm. I found in my research with an inconvenient minority is that when you try to put people um, of a certain race into high positions with, with regard, without regard to their merit, um, you know, the economy tends to drag. If you look at California, they had this uh, measure called Proposition 16 where they were going to institute racial preferences in the mm-hmm. in systems from college admissions to public hiring to employment contracting, and what yeah. happens what what we saw with that that was mainly primarily going to benefit like the one or two um, black owners of the of the biggest public businesses in California, and it was going to make them so much richer, and it wasn't going to help any of the poor black and Hispanic people. But, you know, it's cool because racial representation, right? Um, yeah. And the study actually showed that it would actually cost the California taxpayers about an extra um, $73 million just for the roads in California. Because now the government will have to negotiate contracts specifically with Black-owned businesses instead of with other businesses, with lim- which limits the competition and drives up prices. So the obvious question is, who's to blame for this? Because it's not those uh, few black activists who who you you tend to see in the news. They're not the ones who've moved these uh, wheels forward at this dramatic pace. They're not the ones who've created these conditions. And frankly, just listening to you talking about it, it seems a lot like what we've got here in South Africa, where sometimes people are promoted or, or given advantage beyond their merit. And then what they end up doing is they end up failing spectacularly, which again does not help yeah. to dissuade people from narratives which racists, frankly, would be proud of. Yeah. Well, I, I blame this on Harvard, and I don't say that lightly, but Harvard was the progenitor of this ideology. They're the ones who basically marketed this racial ideology uh, to the public. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s, professors Derek Bell, Harvard, Law alumni Kimberly Crenshaw, Roberto Unger, Mary Matsuda made critical race theory and at Harvard Law School. They made it at Harvard Law School where they asserted that certain races were inherently privileged. Others were inherently oppressed and you needed solutions based on equity to be able to level the playing field. You know, they exported and marketed this ideology and they made it. They packaged it in such a way that liberal progressive elites could swallow and could buy. Um, and it actually, what happens is, um, you know, you have, you, you basically prey off of the desire to be virtuous, off of liberal elites' desire to be virtuous, right? Because if you're a white liberal elite, 
you know, you are made to feel guilty for all of your privilege. You're made to feel guilty for everything. And then you say, well, how do I atone for this, um, my fellow black brethren? And then the progressive activists will say, you atone for this by giving to black sponsored charities and by giving to black organizations and by doing reparations for affirmative action and by letting in more teachers and professors who are black and Hispanic and everything like that. And as a result, you know, you have all of these millions. The funny thing about having such a rich country like America is you have all of these millionaires and billionaires funneling so much of their money into these groups that claim to stand for black activism, that claim to stand for Latino activism, but are really just shell organizations, progressive nonprofits that, that, that enrich a select few people. And surprise, surprise, the main beneficiaries of all of this are the white people who feel felt guilty in the first place themselves. So they become the center of attention again, which is just (laughs) perverse. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a new sort of racism, but it's a, a lot harder to define. And unless you're prepared to do quite a lot of heavy lifting, most people wouldn't even see it. Um, it's, it's deeply disturbing. So, so Kenny, when you wrote this book, did you immediately get blowback from people saying, Oh no, but this is, this is some kind of racism or you're complaining about something that isn't there or, uh, how dare you try to inject yourself into the oppressed classes? You know, there's always someone with an, with an angle here. Who did you get that from? So, two, so I've gotten two main criticisms. Uh, one criticism is that I'm propagating a model minority myth, which is basically the, what, what progressives believe is, you know, Asians trying to position themselves along with whites uh, to put down black people. And that's obvious. That's not what I'm doing at all. Right. Because Asians, what the, the, the story of Asian Americans in this country is not about the story with alliance with whites. You know, Asians were discriminated by white Americans. The well, whole point of Asian. What right. Japanese Americans put into concentration camps, for God's sake, in, in, the, in the war, uh, because obviously yeah. they were enemy. But I mean, if there's any group that, uh, that, 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 that saw themselves incarcerated against all of their their citizens' rights. It was probably that group. The Asians, even even the Asians who came to this country after legal discrimination ended in the 1960s, had faced more disadvantage than the vast majority of the of the people in America. They're, because mm-hmm. they don't have language acquisition. You have these Vietnamese Americans. They come here on boats. Eighty percent of them don't even know English, right? And they're, they're definitely not educated. And yet, within one generation their kid grows up to become, to, to have a higher rate of college attainment than even white Americans. And that's just Vietnamese Americans right there. So what that shows is that you can overcome disadvantage in this country. Um, right. It's not that Asian Americans are not disadvantaged. It's that they were disadvantaged, but they can overcome it through hard work and focusing on education. Um, that's one point of an inconvenient minority. But then the other criticism that I've gotten is that somehow I'm like trying to pit Asian Americans and black Americans against each other. And that's not what I'm trying to do at all. Right. Ultimately what I'm trying to do is align American standards with a true principle of meritocracy, truly judging, truly eliminating race and racial considerations from any ideology. Um, Because the, the road, the dangerous road that you go down is if you allow the government to discriminate or any institution to discriminate on the basis of race for the sake of equity or whatever, you're allowing the government to go back down that road where they can discriminate against your race. Again, 
you know, you, you cannot allow this to become the precedent of society that you bring. You should treat people as individuals, uh, not as members of any privileged or oppressed groups. Well, immediately what comes to mind for me is the other inconvenient minority is, is Nigerian Americans who yeah. far outperform um, even again, white Americans in terms of their general overall success rate in the United States when given freedom and opportunity to, to establish businesses, to educate their kids, to do all the things that we take for granted in Western societies. Um, Nigerian Americans have got incredible results and that doesn't fit very well with the, the narrative of, of, you know, if you have, um, if you, if you're black, uh, that you're, you're, you're doomed to fail and there are so many people who, who are, trying to get you who are trying to to stop you to prevent you from success so it almost seems like asian americans and nigerian americans have no friends inside of the united states certainly not in academia right yeah it's um and and for you know even if you don't want to talk about black immigrants you can talk mm -hmm. about the black americans the descendants of slavery who have um who have gone to places like the army the military where black Americans who have gone to the military have performed much better career wise after the military have become, you know, have exhibited higher rates of business success, mm. higher rates of educational attainment. Um, so there are avenues, right? There are avenues of opportunity for most of the black Americans in this country if they choose to take them. Um, and the, the interesting thing about the army, the U.S. Army, is that there's no lowering standards for admission mm -hmm. into the army, right? You have to pass a standardized exam. You have to pass a physical exam. You have to, you have to be able to push yourself into that realm. And if you can't, there are programs that will help you to reach that standard, but there are no programs that will lower the standard for you because of affirmative action. So um, what, what I show when, what I can show is that the American success story is available for people of all races uh, they just have to commit and 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 commit to a culture of hard work and excellence. So, Kenny, how is the Asian American population responding to this kind of active discrimination and what is happening? Because I'm sure that they're not going to just take it lying down. These are not people who've um, who've had soft lives. Many of them are first generation immigrants. They've had to sacrifice a lot to get there. They've had, a sa had to sacrifice a lot to put their kids through school and through college and to, to feel this kind of sting in a country that promised them that they could have a chance at freedom, at, at success, at opportunity seems to, seems to me that they wouldn't just accept that. They wouldn't just take that lying down. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The problem is they don't know how to, they haven't really figured out how to organize. You know, it takes a little bit of time to be able to figure out how to organize in America when you're a new immigrant. Um, mm -hmm. But recently, recently, it's all come together. Recently, the, the Asian Americans who sued, who sued Harvard represent like maybe 25,000 people, 25,000 Asian Americans who are finally coming together and suing Harvard for racial discrimination. This is very inconvenient uh, lawsuit towards Harvard's own diversity program because now Harvard is discriminating against one minority to make room for another minority. Um, that being said, and I'll say this, you know, Asian Americans, many first gen Asian Americans, yes, are fighting for their rights. But when you become a second generation Asian American, you go through the college system, 
the the ironic thing is that the very principles that brought your kid parents to this country are now being lost upon the second generation, third generation of Asian American students who wow. are who are taught in college to feel guilty for their supposed privilege, to feel guilty for the fact that they worked hard and they studied hard. Um, now be people are being taught in colleges that Asian Americans are a privileged race, um, yeah. that they should they, they should be the ones discriminated against because, you know, um, for for because they need to make room for the people who are truly oppressed, which are black people. Um, and this is very sad. You know, this is very sad among people who I know who really believe this kind of thing, um, who really believe and feel guilty simply for the skin and for the culture that they were born into. You know, you should never feel guilty for the fact that you worked hard. You should never feel guilty for the fact that you studied hard. And I believe that with my heart. And Kenny, this is also true for, for Jewish Americans because yeah. we see a lot more anti-Semitism than we've ever seen before. It seems that Jews, I'm going to say Asian Americans, I'm going to say Nigerian Americans who outperform pretty much everybody, you know, the three groups that I've just mentioned now, none of them white by definition, certainly by the old definitions. Uh, these groups kind of ruin that whole narrative around discrimination, the oppressed and the oppressor, uh, the idea of people being uh, less fortunate or more fortunate just by virtue of their skin color or their background or their culture. These are things that the liberals used to argue. They used to say, it doesn't matter where you come from. If you're prepared to work hard, merit is for everybody, give everybody an opportunity. How has it happened, in your opinion, that the left has become a home for racists? Because they used to be the place that was actively working against this stuff. And, and how does this politically affect Asian Americans? Like, what are they doing about it with their votes? What do they, where do they feel a political home? Is it, is it more in the, the, in the Democrat party or is it more in the Republican party or is it as independents or do they just feel that there isn't a home for them? Well, first of all, Gareth, I'm impressed by your nuanced ethnic analysis of various ethnic groups in America. Uh, you must have read Thomas Sowell or something. <laughs> Maybe you go worth reading, frankly, when it comes to economic analysis, because he's he um, and again, he has, he has a black man who built yeah. himself up from nowhere and has written probably the greatest works in the latter half of the 20th century on the American economy. And for anybody right. to disregard right. him is to miss out on the greater part of your education when it comes to economics. So I'm glad you brought up Thomas Sowell. Sowell. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of him and all the work that he's done. And I think he is an underrated man. And just because he also says inconvenient things, people tend to disregard him uh, just like racists would, frankly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I, well, I certainly, um, would urge readers to definitely go and, and get a copy of one of Thomas Sowell's books, including Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, where he talks about a lot of these different mm -hmm. ethnic groups. Uh, you can put it right next to an inconvenient minority on your bookshelf. But the, uh, the, so what happens with, with leftists or what happens? Why is the left so fixated on race? Right. That, that's the question mm -hmm. that you posed to me. Why is the left yeah. and the American yeah. left so fixated on race? It's because the incentive structures in our country, prioritize uh, victimhood politics and the fixation on race. We have an industry right now 
in America. If you become the diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator of UC Berkeley, you can make about $450,000 a year. You know, if you are an ethnic studies consultant in California, you can make $1,500 an hour. Um, that, for my recent Wall Street Journal article, the California Studies Gold Rush, you guys can look it up. But um, then, you know, if you, if you, as you know, as I've just explained to you, under certain provisions in America, if you are a so-called Black-owned business or if you are a so-called Hispanic or Latino-owned business, your business could be 99% white people. And it could just have one Black figurehead and it becomes a Black-owned business, which doesn't make any sense. But that's the way that the rules work in America today. Um, there is a huge industry and, and that gives you access to preferential government contracts, preferential employment contracts, preferential promotion contracts, that the industry and the bureaucracy that is built up because of race in America is simply is, is impossible to ignore. Um, that, that has created the incentive structure for be able to continue to pander to this, um, victimhood politics ideology, because as long as they continue to get more stuff out of it, they're going to keep milking it until the cow dies. And and the home for Asian American voters, the, the, the political place where they feel most that they can contribute and be a part of? Oh, yes. Um, well, Asian Americans historically have voted for Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. Although the first Bush term, Asian Americans, uh, I think, voted Republican. Um, but they've skewed very Democrat, um, especially during Barack Obama. And they they really bought into the hope and change thing. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't change that much. But then there is a um, but recently, actually, with President Trump in 2020, um, you know, the, the supposed uh, China virus, President Trump, Asian-Americans voted for President Trump at a higher rate than they did in 2016, at a higher rate than they did in 2012. So the pendulum might be swinging back. Um, but if the pendulum is going to swing back, I think this is going to be one of the issues that are going to allow the pendulum to swing back. You know, it's so interesting. You talk about how all of this political intervention in the economy and in academia is necessary in order to create the 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 conclusion to the narrative, because obviously the conclusion is very different if you just let things happen and you just let the, the best people do what they do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think there are many African-Americans and you see them more and more these days who are just tired of being patronized by the system because really they are being used. And um, mm -hmm. here's the Thomas Sowell book, by the way, that I was referring to. This is basic economics. You know, <laughs> there, there are so many great black minds in America who've contributed like Thomas Sowell has to an understanding of, of why a system of, of maximum liberty and of minimum government interference is probably the best way to get the best out of everyone. And yet it seems that there are people who are actively working against that. I mean, you mentioned Barack Obama just now and that hope and change narrative and how that appealed to people, because essentially that is a kind of meritorious, uh, you know, merit, meritocratic um, argument. And and what ended happening ended up happening with that was that it soured very quickly, because, you know, they, they they didn't mean what they said, and so often this happens is that people in politics tell us one thing, but they mean a very different thing. What do you think Asian Americans want 
out of government, if anything. I mean, if you can the even hope, say the hope Asian is that, American, because obviously Asian Americans, you know, they're a very right. diverse group within themselves, as you said at the beginning. But what do you right. think they would like to have, especially the immigrants? Well, there's there are two um, there are two directions that Asian Americans could go in this country, right? They could they could try to position themselves as a victim group, right? right. One way that they could sort of get the sympathy necessary. Um, in their country is to position themselves as a victim group. And you saw an attempt to do that more recently in the 2021 Stop Asian Hate Movement, where mm -hmm. an, a shooter in Atlanta, Georgia, it's a big city in America, shot about, I think, six Asian women. Um, but then he shot um, one Hispanic woman and also a white woman. And the, the motive is yet, uh, there's, there's not a conclusion for the motive yet. It may have been a racist motive, but it may not have been. And yeah. The, 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 the nonprofit scene, the media scene rallied around the stop Asian hate, um, trying to position Asians as a victim group uh, of white people. Um, but that narrative quickly fell apart as soon as the data became clear that the majority, not the majority, but the plurality of attacks against Asian Americans in America did not come from white people. About 28% of them came from black people. 25% of them came from white people in 2018. The rest came from other races. So this is not a crime of white supremacy, white supremacists, you know, killing Asians and everything like that. So, you know, Asians could position themselves as a victim group, but there are various, um, they would have to appease other victim groups, which is a little bit hard to do um, given the objective data. Um, but I prefer that Asian Americans stand up, not for themselves, but just for basic American principles, right? Just stand up for equality. How about that? You know, stand up for treatment on the basis of merit, stand for treatment on the basis of character, the ignorance of the color of your skin, a true colorblind meritocracy. Isn't that the ideal, right? Um, my group, colorusunited.org, which you can see over here, um, we advocate for a race blind America, right. colorusunited.org. And and I'm president of this new of this new group. And we're, we're challenging. We're taking on the institutions that are trying to divide America on the basis of race because it's going against our ideals. It's going against what we what we really should become, which is a colorblind meritocracy. So I think that that's what Asian Americans and people of all racial groups uh, should really advocate for, because I think that that's going to ultimately be um, the principle that unites us. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to, to getting into this book properly, and um, I wish you luck with it. I think it's a tremendously brave book to write at a time where this kind of narrative is not very popular. And we see lots and lots of people who are opting into the victim class because, hey, you know, even if you're Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, it can get you um, way more interest and way more publicity and way more self-absorbed satisfaction than being a prince or a princess. And that tells you something about the time we're in. Um, I think that, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are in the world, there is always net immigration into America. It seems that none of the boats are leaving from Florida going to Cuba. None of the people in North Korea are, are, are welcoming South Korean refugees. It seems that wherever the society is most free and where you open it up to meritocracy, the, it attracts people. Uh, whether they are necessarily the best or the worst at something, they'll only figure that out in a meritocratic society. Thank God someone like you is standing up for this. Well done on the book. 
Thank you so much, Gareth. Thank you for having me. Congratulations. The book you have to check out. If you, um, if you can get the copy on Amazon, wherever you get good books, it's called An Inconvenient Minority. It is Kenny Shu's book. Congratulations, Kenny, and good luck with all the, all the other projects you're involved in. Absolutely. Thank you, Gareth. Pleasure to see you. Thank you. Cliffcentral.com.